Amen. Thank you, Baba. Powerful prayer, brother. Thank you, brother. Do Christians pick and choose what parts of the Bible we want to obey? Are we hypocrites for following some parts of the Bible and ignoring others? For example, if, if Christians insist on clinging to traditional views of sex and gender and marriage because the Bible says so, what about all the other things the Bible says, particularly in the Old Testament, that Christians seem to ignore? On July 2nd of last year, a popular TikTok performer named Summer Luck posted a video challenging this perceived Christian hypocrisy. Here's what was said uh, in the video, edited slightly for content. Your religion says that eating bacon is a sin. How come you ignore that? Your religion also says eating lobster is a sin. Cutting the sides of your hair is a sin. Wearing clothes made out of mixed fabrics is a sin. Getting a tattoo is a sin. A man trimming the edges of his beard is a sin. It says that a woman is not to hold any position of authority and is to be quiet. That if a woman is not a virgin on her wedding night, she is to be stoned to death. And that planting two different kinds of seeds in the same field is a sin. But that's too hard for you. So you've decided that God didn't mean any of that. He only meant the being gay part. Listen, if you're going to spread hatred towards others by quoting the Bible at them, make sure that you first follow the entire thing or shut the entire blank up, end quote. Now, if you know your Bible well, you may have noticed that nearly all of Summer Luck's objections come from the law of Moses in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And, and Summer isn't the only one who feels this way. A video went to go on to receive uh, nearly half a million likes. And if you listen to the objections that unbelievers will often make to the Christian faith, they are often coming from something in the law of Moses. Perhaps even more troubling is Summer's claim to have been raised in a conservative Christian home, having attended a well-known Bible college in California before coming out as a trans woman. This is a young person who grew up in a church perhaps much like this, hearing the Bible taught and preached, and yet Summer was either never taught or simply refused to believe what Christians believe about the Old Testament law. Let me tell you, brother, sister, friend, this morning, rightly understanding the Old Testament law is a crucial issue. Our discipleship hinges on this. Our ability to defend our faith hinges on rightly understanding the law of Moses. Our ability to raise up young people that hold fast to the hope that we have received in the gospel hinges on us rightly understanding the law of Moses. 
Our own faithfulness hinges on this. And no one is better equipped to help us think rightly about the law of Moses than Jesus Christ himself. So if you're not already there, direct your attention in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount together before the Christmas season. If you remember, I preached a sermon on this whole passage, Matthew 5, 17 to 20, and then I ran out of time on my last point. So this sermon is that last point, except a little longer. So that's free. Uh, Jesus is, is preaching to his disciples about how to live righteously on this earth as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And in order to do that, if you want to live rightly on this earth as a citizen of that kingdom, then you need to understand how you are supposed to relate to the Old Testament law of Moses. And again, no one is better equipped to help us do that than Jesus Christ himself. So let's listen to the passage one more time. Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18. Do not think, Jesus says, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, key phrase, but to fulfill them. For truly I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. If you had 30 seconds to talk with summer luck, or someone else with similar objections, you might simply tell them that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law. Therefore, Christians do not relate to that law in the same way that Old Testament saints did. But how did Jesus fulfill the Old Testament law? And what does that mean for us? Those are the questions I hope, with God's help, to answer from this sermon this morning. So I want to show you, with God's help, four ways that Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament law. Number one, Jesus obeyed the demands of the law. Jesus obeyed the demands of the law. Before we talk about what Jesus did, he says he fulfilled the law, before, or he's come to fulfill the law. Before we talk about that and how he did that, we need to make sure we're all on the same page and understand what Jesus means by law. When we talk about law today, in today's sermon, we're talking about the law of Moses. This is sometimes called the Mosaic law. The law given by Moses. So if you remember, God delivers his people from slavery uh, to Egypt. They go to Mount Sinai, and there at Mount Sinai, God gives his rescued people a law. He gives them a new covenant written through or given through Moses as the mediator of this covenant. And, and the law is the instructions on how rescued people are supposed to live. This is the law of Moses. If you want to read it, it's given to us primarily in, in the first five books of the Old Testament, but primarily in, in the books of Exodus and Leviticus, with a little bit repeated in Deuteronomy. Now, some people say there are as many as 613 laws given by God to Moses. And whether that's the, the correct number or not, we know that those laws are summarized in the Ten Commandments. So what are the Ten Commandments? Worship nothing above or before the true God of the universe. You shall have no other gods before me. 
Don't make an image of God. Don't dishonor or profane the name or character of God. Honor the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. That's the Ten Commandments. That's the summary statement, if you will, of the law of Moses. Now, here's the question, brother, sister, friend. How do you do at obeying that? How do you do at keeping the demands of the law? How many of you could say, I do pretty good? Now, you might be able to say you do pretty good at some of them, but especially when you get to that last one, the 10th commandment, don't covet, don't want anything that doesn't belong to you in an unhealthy way. Paul says, I wouldn't know what sin is apart from that commandment. I was condemned by it. If you're honest and you look at your life, you cannot say that you are clean when it comes to the standard of the law of God, the law of Moses. If you feel like you're pretty good, consider even just what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount about the Ten Commandments. Do you remember about a month or so ago, Eli preached a sermon on Jesus' teaching regarding anger and murder. The Pharisees thought that as long as they didn't physically take another life, then they were innocent of breaking that commandment. What did Jesus say? If you even hate your brother or call them a fool, you have committed murder where? In your heart. Or as we'll see in a few weeks, the the seventh commandment, don't commit adultery. Jesus says, if you even want to commit it, if you even think it, you have broken the command in your heart. So Jesus says these laws that are given to God by God to Moses, to the people, these laws come to us and attack us not only at the external level, but at the internal level. It's not just what you do with your hands, but what you think with your mind and what you feel with your heart. So no wonder then the Apostle Paul will look at us and look at the law of God and he'll say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So brother, sister, friend, if that is true, and it is, what hope do you have? Here's what we're tempted to do if we're honest. We're tempted to relax the standard of the law make it a little bit easier to obey, if I can just make it a little bit more manageable, if I can just make it something that I can attain, then I'll be all right. Surely God doesn't expect me to do all that, does he? Jesus says in our same passage in verse 19 of Matthew 5, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. This law must be obeyed perfectly. The problem is you and I will never do it. How did Jesus fulfill the law? He has come to perfectly obey the demands of the law in our place. You look at all that the law requires, at every single point, Jesus has obeyed perfectly. He never broke the Sabbath 
Now, he did at times break some of the man-made rules about the Sabbath, but he never broke the Sabbath. He never dishonored his parents. He never stole. He never lusted. He never lied. He never coveted. He never sinned in his thoughts, in his, in his feelings, in his actions. Jesus was and is perfectly sinless. So 1 John 3 says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. It's law-breaking. But you know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is what? No sin. Jesus Christ has perfectly obeyed the law for you, which means you are not called to perfectly obey it because you cannot. Or Martin Luther would put it this way, the law says do this and it is never done. Grace says believe in this and everything is already done. How does Jesus fulfill the law? By obeying it perfectly in our place. And yet, even though Jesus perfectly obeyed the law of God, number two, Jesus endured the penalty of the law. Jesus endured the penalty of the law. Most laws have a penalty that is paid when you break it, right? You speed, you get a speeding ticket. You, you cheat on a test, you might, if you're caught, you might get an F or maybe even expelled, right? There are laws, and laws have consequences. Laws have penalties, and, and the law of Moses is no different, Throughout the law, we're given not only the commands, the expectations of what we must do, but also the penalties if we break the law. And if you read the, the Old Testament, especially the first five books, you're going to see the most severe penalty for breaking that law was the death penalty. So, you'll notice the death penalty is prescribed for things like worshiping false gods, blasphemy, breaking the Sabbath, murder, Adultery, lying, and my personal favorite, disobeying or dishonoring your parents. I still remember being a young boy and my mom telling me, you know, if we lived in Old Testament times, you'd get stoned for that. Well, she was right. That was the penalty. Now, that might seem harsh to you, but remember the penalty that God gave to Adam and Eve for eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What was the penalty? The day you eat of it, you shall surely what? Die. The penalty of sin is always death. Death is not something that is sometimes required for disobedience to God's law. It is the universal penalty for all law-breaking. Why? Because God is petty and capricious? No, because he is so holy. Which is why Paul says in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is what? Death. That's the penalty. That's the penalty for breaking the law. The penalty you deserve, brother, sister, friend, for even one sin is death. And you and I have committed thousands of upon thousands, upon thousands. So again, what hope do we have? If we're honest, we're tempted to relax the standards of the law again. We're tempted to think that God will grade on a curve. 
You know, man, nobody's perfect, right? Man, everybody messes up. So surely, as long as I just do a little bit better than, than Frank over there or Jose or, or, or so-and-so, it doesn't matter. As long, as long as I do a little bit better than them, I'm fine. God's going to grade on a curve. No. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. There is no loosening of the penalty of the law. That penalty must must be paid. And for those of you who are in Christ, it has been paid. How did Jesus fulfill the law? By enduring the penalty of the law. When Jesus says he has come to fulfill the law, he means more than that he's going to obey it fully. Jesus also wants us to understand that he has come to absorb the full penalty for disobedience on the cross. So in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 13, the scripture says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus was hanged on a cross in your place, and in so doing, he absorbed the full wrath of God for all your sin. Now, listen to me, brother, sister, friend. I don't think we really get the weight of this. I think if you're honest, many of us were tempted to think that Jesus paid most of it, but not all of it. Yeah, he died on the cross for my sins, but when I sin as a Christian, I still have to suffer a little bit for my sin. I still have to pay a little bit for my sin. I I better make sure that I I clean up my act just right and I turn around just right and I confess my sin just so and if I don't do it just right, then at the end, what awaits me is hell. That's what some of us, I think, are tempted to think. But listen to me, brother or sister. If your faith is in Jesus, on the cross, every sin you would ever commit, its penalty was fully paid for. Listen to the way one pastor, a brother named Elder D.J. Ward in Lexington, Kentucky, listen to the way he put it on a sermon he preached in 1989. He said this, I contend this morning that the death of Christ was not an attempt. It was an accomplishment. When one accomplishes something, it means somewhere they, have, they had to have an assignment. Well, what was the assignment? His name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save. Not attempt to save. Not try to save. Not hope to save. Not want to save. But he shall save his people from their sins. He continues. Now, I hear this on television and in churches, that that God has done all he can do. The rest is up to you. If the rest is up to you, he says, he didn't accomplish it. If anything is up to you, he didn't accomplish it. He continues. I've even heard this. You've got to help God to save you. He can't do it by himself. If God cannot do it by himself, then he didn't accomplish it. 
He's a false God. He's a liar, and you best not trust him. And he concludes, if he didn't do it, then we ought to stop singing, Jesus paid it all. We best sing, he paid some of it. If this was not accomplished, we're going to hell. But if he did do it, he doesn't need your best, and your works need not speak for you. If he did do it, you can leave here rejoicing that your sins are under the blood. I declare this morning, he says, that Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. Every sin I was going to commit, every sin I thought about committing, he nailed it to his cross, and I bear it no more. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the full penalty for your sin was paid on the cross. Because Jesus paid it all, and the full penalty for all your law-breaking was paid on the cross, Romans 8.1 can say, there is therefore now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who gets no condemnation? Everybody? No. Those who are in Christ Jesus. How much condemnation do those who are in Christ Jesus get? None. If Jesus paid it all, then there is not a drop left for you, Christian, to pay. Jesus fulfilled the law by obeying its demands perfectly and by enduring its penalties fully. That is incredibly good news. <clears throat> And because of that, because of these first two things, your relationship, Christian, to the law is completely transformed. Which leads to the third way Jesus fulfills the law. Jesus delivers from our bondage to the law. Jesus delivers from our bondage to the law. In the uh, earliest decades of the church, a fierce controversy arose over how to welcome Gentiles into the church. Most of us in this room, if not all of us, are Gentiles. We are not ethnically Jewish. In the earliest days of the church, there was a huge debate, an uproar, over what to do about a mostly Jewish church welcoming in many Gentile Christians. And here's the debate. Do we force them to follow the law of Moses? Law of Moses, including things like circumcision or dietary laws, or like Summer Luck said, no lobster and no bacon. Certainly no lobster wrapped in bacon. And here's this big debate, and Paul and Barnabas are, are traveling around the Gentile world, and people, Gentiles, are coming to Jesus, and the Jews, the Jewish Christians are saying, wait a minute, if you want to be a good Christian, you have got to obey the law of Moses. And so all the, the apostles and the elders of the churches go to Jerusalem for this big council, and there's a big debate in Acts chapter 15. And at some point in the discussion, Peter, you remember Peter in Acts 10, a vision comes to him and there's this blanket filled with, you know, delicious meats. And they're all unclean. And the Spirit says to Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, no, Lord, that Peter here in Acts 15, listen to what he says about the law. He says, therefore, 
Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Here's what Peter's saying. The law of Moses is like chains. It's bondage that no Jew, past or present, has been able to bear. So Peter, Paul, James, the other apostles, they agree in Acts 15 not to require Gentile Christians to obey the law of Moses because it's bondage. Maybe you're not used to thinking of the law that way, especially thinking of the law of Moses that way. I mean, this is the word of God, isn't it? It is, of course. But this is actually repeated it's throughout the New Testament. So Acts 13 Paul preaches that those who believe in Jesus are freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The law of Moses has enslaved you and Christ has set you free. Or Galatians 3, verse 23, before faith came, we were what? Held captive under the law. Romans 7, verse 6, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive Romans 8, verse 2, the law of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. How is it that the law is bondage? Because you cannot keep it. Years ago, years and years ago, in fact, this just came to me. I hadn't thought about this in years. I was a five-year-old boy living in Westerville, Ohio, suburb of Columbus, and we had this basement where all our toys were, and I remember occasionally our parents would say, clean up the basement and no dinner until the basement is clean, and that basement would be like you know, inches thick of toys and garbage and mess. And that law given to us was bondage because we looked at it and we said, we can't do it. It's too much. It's too hard. Listen, that's nothing compared to the law of Moses. You cannot do this. You want to try to reach perfection by obeying the law of Moses? You won't get it through an hour. And Peter recognizes this, and and the apostles recognize this. They say, this is a yoke we cannot bear. And so the New Testament repeatedly says, you have been set free from the law of Moses. So what does this mean practically? What does it mean that you and I are delivered from the law's bondage? Well, there's a long tradition of dividing the law into three categories. So you take the law of Moses and... um, It's a long tradition, probably as far back as Tertullian, an early church father, has a strong tradition in the Presbyterian church of dividing the law into ceremonial, moral, and civil categories. So ceremonial, that would be the things like the cleanliness laws, the rules for sacrifices and worship, rules to symbolize purity, things like circumcision or the rules about mixed fibers and mixed fields and tattoos and beards and dietary laws, all that's ceremonial law. And the, the, the argument goes that, tradition, that Christians are no longer bound 
by the ceremonial law because all these things were signposts pointing us to Jesus. So it's kind of like when you're on your way to Disney World, you see all the signs, say Disney World, so many miles away. Once you get there, you don't need the sign anymore, right? So now that Jesus has come, we don't need the sacrificial system, do we? doesn't make any sense to go to a temple when Jesus says your body is what? The temple of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't make sense to sacrifice sheep and goats and bulls when Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. So all that ceremonial law is now obsolete. Another category is the civil law. <clears throat> civil law. These are the rules that would govern Israel as a nation. So think about uh, like rules for landowners or rules for forgiving debts or the civil penalties for law-breaking. Things like stoning for breaking certain laws. These are rules that were given to a particular nation in a particular time of redemptive history. These rules don't apply to the modern state of Israel because it's not under the law of Moses, the covenant of Moses. This was a particular people and a particular time. These civil laws applied to them. And the argument goes that these are no longer binding on Christians today because churches don't have civil authority like the nation of Israel had over its people. And then there's the moral law. Moral law is that which reflects the eternal character of God. Does the moral law apply to us today? That's the big debate. And some would say, well, the moral law is the Ten Commandments. And so the Ten Commandments are still binding on Christians today because that's part of the moral law. And yes, it's true, nine out of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. But there's a problem. The Fourth Commandment, remember what the Fourth Commandment is? Remember the what? Sabbath day and keep it holy. Virtually no Christian believes that the Sabbath commandment continues in the New Testament in the same way as the other nine. In fact, if you read through the New Testament, go to Colossians chapter 2 or be on the screen, and you'll find a very clear statement from the Apostle Paul that the Sabbath commandment is no longer binding on Christians. Colossians 2, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So this leads many theologians, including a popular New Testament scholar like Tom Schreiner at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, to conclude that Christians are free from the entire law of Moses. Here's what Schreiner writes. The distinction between the moral, ceremonial, and civil law is appealing and attractive. Even though it has some elements of truth, it does not sufficiently capture Paul's entire stance toward the law. Paul argues that the entirety of the law has been set aside now that Christ has come. To say that the moral elements of the law continue to be authoritative blunts the truth that the entire Mosaic covenant is no longer in force for believers. Here's what that means, brothers and sisters. The law of Moses is a part of a temporary covenant, but Jesus came and brings in a new covenant. 
And we who are in Christ, if your faith is in Jesus, you are completely free from any bondage to the law of Moses. You're free. Now, the moment I say that, several objections might arise in your mind. One is that someone might say, well, are you saying that the Old Testament, or specifically the law of Moses, isn't important? Absolutely not. Law of Moses is Scripture. This is the Word of God. It still teaches us about God. You can read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and learn about the character of God, learn about the promises of God, learn about His love for His people. It's also helpful because it points us to Jesus. It shows us the law that He would obey and the penalty that He would suffer. It also shows us our own sinfulness and our need for a Savior. So absolutely, the law of Moses is still important. It's still Scripture. It's still the Word of God, and God speaks to us. But you are not under its bondage, Christian. Second objection some might have is, well, are you saying that God is inconsistent? That God changes his mind? I mean, why would he require one thing from the Israelites and then another thing from us today? Can God not make up his mind? Listen, it was always God's plan to give the nation of Israel in the Old Testament a temporary covenant to guard them until the coming of Christ. It's all over the book of Galatians. Now, think about it this way. If you've ever read the book, The Lord of the Rings, the first half of the book, Frodo and Sam and eventually Strider and Merry and Pippin, they're all on their way to Rivendell. You remember? And some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Just, just try to picture it. These hobbits, you know, people with short, big, hairy feet, they're on their way to a city where they can rest and figure out what to do with this ring. There's this powerful ring. Nobody really knows what it is. Nobody really knows how powerful it is. Gandalf's studying somewhere, trying to figure it out, but they've got to get to Rivendell. That's the kind of first part of the book, The Fellowship of the Ring. But then they get to Rivendell, and there's this big council, and Elrond's there, and Gandalf's there, all this stuff. And they say, okay, we've got to take the ring to Mount Doom. It has to be destroyed in the fires from which it came. Nobody would be reading that book and say, wait a minute, I thought they were supposed to go to Rivendell. Because obviously, the instructions have changed. Yes, Rivendell at first, but now where? Mount Doom. So too with the storyline of Scripture. It's revealed to us progressively. And yes, in the Mosaic Covenant, there are laws and signs and, and requirements and penalties that apply for that season. But now, praise God, we have been delivered from the bondage to the law. We are now subject to Christ. A final objection that someone might have is, someone might say, well, are you saying that Christians are free from the law and morality and that we can do whatever we want? Absolutely not, which leads to our final way that Jesus fulfills the law. Jesus empowers our obedience to the law. Jesus empowers our obedience to the law. I want to look at a passage we read earlier, but read one more verse. This is from Romans chapter 8. Right after 
Paul says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says in verse 2, for the law of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus. Why isn't there condemnation? Because you've been set free from the law that condemned you. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So, so you are freed from the law of Moses because God sent his son to obey the law perfectly, to die in your place. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Notice that last phrase. The, righteousness, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in you, Christian, when you walk, not according to your own fleshly desires, but according to the Spirit. When Jesus set you free from the law of Moses, from its bondage, he did not set you free so you can do whatever you want. He set you free so that you can live a life of spirit-filled righteousness. If you read throughout the New Testament, you'll find occasionally that that righteousness is referred to sometimes the law of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, or in the book of Galatians chapter 6. The, what is the law of Christ? It's, it's the command to love. The scriptures say that the law is fulfilled through love. So here's what we need to do. When we come across the Old Testament and, and the law of Moses, I don't think it's helpful to distinguish between moral, ceremonial, civil. Here's what I think we need to do. We need to look at every single commandment in light of Christ. So for example... The sacrificial system. Christians, are we required to sacrifice? Well, what do we see in Christ? We see that he's the perfect sacrifice. We see that in Christ, the, the veil at the temple is torn. We see that in Christ, we have access to the Father, not by the blood of bulls and goats, but through the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So no, we're not looking for a temple in Jerusalem. We're not looking for sacrifices there to return. We are looking to Christ, our perfect sacrifice. Or what about circumcision? Requirement, the covenant sign given to Abraham. The book of Colossians tells us that we receive in Christ a circumcision of the heart where Christ cuts out the old and gives us a heart of flesh. Or what about rules like don't eat bacon? Or don't eat shellfish. The New Testament is clear that Jesus has declared all foods clean. Those laws were given to the Old Testament people of Israel to set them apart from the nations. But now in Christ, we are free. So go and eat a BLT for lunch. You're free in Christ. We, here's what we do. We, we don't... We don't try to interpret the scriptures through some rubric of civil, ceremonial, moral, but we look at them through Christ. We're looking to Jesus, and as we read through the Old Testament law, we repeatedly say, what did Jesus say about this? What did Jesus say about don't murder? He says, don't even hate somebody. What did Jesus say about don't commit adultery? He says, don't even lust. And on and on we could go. 
And as we do this, Christian, we are empowered by the Spirit to actually do what we never could do by the flesh. Through the gospel, we actually have what we need to faithfully obey the law of Christ, to love our neighbor as ourself, to faithfully, truly, not perfectly, obey the intent of the law, which is fulfilled in love. At the end of the movie, iRobot, a robot named Sonny, has fulfilled the objectives of his uh, design program, but now he realizes he doesn't have a purpose. And he says to his friend, now that I have fulfilled my purpose, I don't know what to do. To which his friend responds, I guess you'll have to find your way like the rest of us. That's what it means to be free. In this view, in the world's view of freedom, there's no overarching purpose to life. Freedom means finding your own purpose, making your own way, making it up as you go. And that's the view that is held not only by people like Summer Luck, but by your neighbors, your grandkids, your coworkers, and even your own heart when it goes on autopilot. We are all tempted to think that purpose comes when we make our own path and find our own way. But in the Bible, we find freedom when we place our lives on the tracks that God has laid for us. Just like a train is not free when it's derailed, you are not free when you are derailed from the law of God. In the old covenant, under the Mosaic covenant, the people of Israel were bound to the law of Moses. You, Christian, have been put on a new set of tracks. You have been put on the law of Christ, that law which is fulfilled through love. So what will we do? Will you rant and rave against what Jesus does require of you as a Christian? Will you complain that God chose to reveal his will progressively in stages, wishing for a God that was easier to understand, that was a little bit more consistent? Will you long for an Old Testament checklist where you can assure yourself that you are fine without investing in a relationship with God? Or will you rejoice in God the Father who sent His Son to obey the demands of the law, suffer the penalty of the law, deliver you from bondage to the law, and send His Spirit to empower you to obey the law of Christ? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the good news 